You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 546 for February 24th, 2021. On today's show, saxophonist Claire Daly. Today is the Jazz Session's 14th anniversary. Can you even believe it? 14 years ago today, I started the Jazz Session with an interview with saxophonist Grant Stewart, recorded in a hotel room on very low-quality gear in Rochester, New York. And 14 years and so many life changes later that they are uncountable, the show is still going strong. This show exists and has been able to exist for all of this time because people become members. Please help me celebrate this birthday by becoming a member today. You can go to thejazzsession.com slash join, thejazzsession.com slash join, and become a member for five or ten bucks, and you get bonus episodes and early access to the shows and all kinds of cool stuff. Thank you so much. Claire Daly recently reissued her 2008 tribute to Rasan Roland Kirk. It's called Ra Ra. Welcome to the Jazz Session. Thanks. I am very happy to be here. I am very happy to have you here. We are here today to talk about your album, Ra Ra, which is a tribute to uh, Rasan Roland Kirk, uh, who has played a, an enormous influence in my life and my appreciation of improvised music. And uh, I know the same is true for you. So I'm excited to kind of dig in to your history with Rasan and how it led to this album. So actually, maybe we can just start right there. Can you talk about how you first got introduced to Rassan's music? Absolutely. And bright moments, by the way. Yes. Um, to you and your listeners. Um, when I was 18, um, I went, I grew up in New York and I went to Boston to go to Berkeley and I found the return of the 5,000 pound man in the used record store. And I bought it and it, I came back to my dorm room and it changed my life. Now, why it did you was, buy it? Uh, that's my, that's my first question. What about it made you buy it? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it does have a cool well, cover. You know, the cover, the cover has a, has a cool picture of Rasan, And I don't think that I knew who he was yet, but you know, in those days, the used records were like two bucks or something. <laughs> sure. And, um, 
you know, there was a store across the street from Berkeley called Deja Vu. And they, you know, used record store. And uh, all of us, you know, we'd go over there and spend our little pittance on 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 used records. And I took lots of chances. I, I, I got many records of people I was unfamiliar with. But this one just turned my head around. I mean, this one, the, you know, this record affected me deeply. Um, at the end of that school year, Rasan was coming to play at the jazz workshop in Boston. And I was supposed to go home back to New York after the end of the semester. And I just said, you know what? I'm going to stay up here because I have to hear this guy play. And so I went every night and heard him. And uh, he's just been one of my favorite forces of nature since then. What about the record and then what about seeing him affected you so deeply? Can you put your finger on what it was about the music? Sure, sure. Well, you know, the spirit in which he plays, um, excuse me, is, is, I don't know, you know, there are things you can't put into words. And they're just, I think that, you know, there are many great players and the ones that reach us are the ones that reach us. And he affected me so deeply. I, I can't really say what it is because it's not like, oh, I was listening to, you know, at that time I wasn't analyzing everything that was being played. I was just getting the feeling of the music. And I felt a sense of humor and I felt seriousness and, you know, gr- great artistry. Um, all, you know, all those things. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm putting it into words now at the time. I just was blown away. It's like, Oh my God, actually I spoke to my father, uh, that's in, in the beginning after I found him. And I, and I said, uh, pop, I've found the man. The man is Rasan. <laughs> I don't know what my father thought I was talking about, <laughs> but, um, that I remember vividly saying that to him because I believed that like I found my guy. It's Rasan Roland Kirk. I love the, well, at that time, I didn't even know that much about uh, the avant-garde, but I, I, I love, you know, the borders that he crossed because he would do pop tunes. He would do Coltrane tunes. He would do anything he wanted to do. He was influenced by all music. And I, I relate to that. I feel like he could authentically 
swim in any of those waters too. Like there, you know, there's a lot of examples of great jazz musicians, you know, knocking out an album of Beatles covers or whatever for a, a contractual obligation, and it sounds exactly like that. But with Rasan, it always felt very much like he was knitting together the entire diaspora of black music and whichever direction he went he was doing it fully like with his whole heart and soul at least to me yeah yes and also i mean just the spirit of this man imagine being on the road living largely on the road traveling with several horns and being without sight I mean, well, you're you're traveling, you know. You know, there's a degree of risk or danger, you know. You know, the, you're out in the world, kind of uh, on your own. He wasn't on his own. He always had people with him. But here he was, just he was out in the world. It, he was unstoppable, is a word I use a lot about him. And he's an unstoppable force of nature. I'm also mind. traveling, and I'm white, and uh, he was traveling as a, you know, a blind jazz musician and he's black. Um, so, you know, t- my, uh, whatever danger I might face, I think pales in comparison to, uh, what he was probably up against, uh, you know, back in the day. Absolutely. You know, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, um, if I can just share a quick anecdote with you before the uh, era of the internet, I had heard a lot of Rasan, but I had never seen him. Um, and, I was living in Japan. Um, this was uh, more than two decades ago. And I was walking along uh, kind of a back street in this uh, like kind of business district in Tokyo. And I saw a sign for this place called uh, the Swing Cafe. And I didn't know what it was, so I walked in. And what it turned out to be was this kind of cavernous room with couches all around the outside and a few tables kind of scattered in the middle. And then at one end of the rectangular room, one of the short ends was a big screen and they brought two menus to your table. And one was for drinks and the other was for which jazz film you wanted to watch. And they would, you'd go into the queue almost like a jukebox and they'd put it up on the screen. And when I walked in, a Rasan concert was playing And, of course, I'd seen photographs of him and stuff and heard the music, so I knew that it was him. But I just remember sitting down in this place, like, getting a tea or something, and just for maybe an hour and a half being just absolutely mesmerized by what was happening on screen. Because you can can read about how he did what he did, and you can even listen to him do what he did. But when you watch him actually do what he did... You still can't believe it, even when it's right there in front, in front of your face. His his facility across so many horns, so many horns at once, so many different kinds of horns. It's it was just breathtaking. I, I'll never ever forget that moment. You know, I I hear you. I really hear you on that. It it. Um, now I have to say about when I saw him, um, because I was listening to this vibrant record. I went to the jazz workshop. I always went every time I gone to hear, went to hear jazz, and sometimes I still do it. I think God, I better get there early so I get a good seat. And um, you know, I go early, and you know, it turns out there's five people there all night. <laughs> but um, uh, I was sitting up in front, and I was waiting. And the first night he was late, and when he came in, I did not know that he had had a stroke, and he 
it, he was struggling and it was, I was, I was, it was gut wrenching to me because I, I, it was so sad to see him struggle. I mean, it was not sad. It was hard to see him struggle. And, um, but I, you know, and I left, I was very upset when I, after the end of the night, I just, I, I don't know. I just, it just caught me off guard. And then I went back and, you know, and he got stronger every night. I, I just marvel at this human. The, another thing to mention is um, about clubs. You know, there's a club in San Jose called the Cafe Stritch. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, that used to be called like the Ulipian Cafe or something like that too? Right? Yeah, 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 that's the one. That's the one. And that's the record, the Ra Ra record is a picture taken there. Because I played for three years at this uh, event called the Rasanathon which was uh, like, you know, a week of Rasan-related people. And Dorothon comes, and Betty Neals comes, the poet, poetess from, from the 5,000-pound man. And they have a, the mural on the wall. I'm standing in front of a mural on the wall of Rasan's picture from the cover of the 5,000-pound man. And I'm playing his stretch. They had his stretch there, which they had... Uh, Dorthon had had loaned it or whatever to them, and um, it never worked. I'd been there, you know, a few other years, and it, it was there. And they would hang it on the wall every night, and then put it in a safe, or you know, after the after the club closed. And uh, yeah, so so you know, this one year, the third time I went there, and Steve Borkenhagen, who owns the place, handed me the stretch and said, "We got it fixed." And so I played it. Wow! And that was the bright moment for sure <laughs> wow that yeah. is amazing ah <laughs> oh, that's incredible that gives me uh gives me chills just uh just hearing about it Let's take a quick break from the interview to remind you about membership. Today is the 14th birthday of the jazz session, and it can keep going for many years to come if you turn from listener to member. It's super easy. Just go to thejazzsession.com slash join. There you can become a member for 5 or $10 a month. At the $5 level, you get the weekly track of the week bonus episode on which an artist talks about a track from one of their albums. At the $10 level, you get that each week, plus a bonus monthly episode as well. Go to thejazzsession.com slash join. Let's do this for another 14 years together. Thanks. Now back to the show. Yeah, well, 
I'm, I'm as much, you know, as, 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 and I've spent my whole life as a musician, and I am a musician, but I'm still also a fan. <laughs> you know, when, when, I, when I love an artist, I really love them. And Rassan was one of the first ones that really just had that effect on me. So, so, I, so I made this record back in 2008. That was when I had the Ra Ra band. And I, during the pandemic, Donald Elfman, who was at Koch Records, Koch Jazz, um, is now has his own small label. And he called me and said, hey, did anybody ever put this out? Because I, I only put it out at my website. You only found this record if, if you were at my website. And I hand drew all the covers and, you know, it was a very personal little thing. And he said, oh, I like this record. If you want, I'll put it out. So that's how that's how it came to be at this time. Appropriately, uh, the you know, I think the pandemic has been a great time to tap into the a, a spirit like Rassan's. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say this uh, this entire period of the life of the United States is a great time to tap into uh, a spirit like Rassan's. I think we could use we could use more of his fearlessness and speaking truth. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I hesitate to say now yeah. more than ever because I think it's always true, uh, but now feels it feels very relevant these days. Yeah. Let yeah. Let's talk about putting together the music on Ra Ra because. Uh, it's it's a tribute to him, but it's not just a, it's it's not some kind of like act of mimicry or you know flat out covers. I mean, it's definitely your record, uh, you know, inspired by him and by the music he recorded. Will you talk about how you decide? There's so much to choose from, musically speaking. Can you talk about how you put together the repertoire for this album? I'd love to, because um, I remember it very well. I I I never want to do a tribute record that is you know, an imitation of the person. Um, and I picked tunes. I, I had written um, Contrafacts on two of his tunes on Ladies Blues and what was the other one? Um, and Bright Moments. So I had those two. Uh, I, I picked some, just some of his other tunes that I really liked um, and some that I hadn't, like Funk Underneath. I think I found Funk Underneath at that time. I hadn't even really known that one before the record as much. I picked a few not obvious ones. Um, uh, Simone was written by Frank Foster, and Frank Foster and Rassan were great friends. So that was that connection. And Rassan did record it. And what else? Rassan did record Alfie, and I felt like doing that tune, and I actually sang it on the record. I'm, I'm not a singer, but I like to sing sometimes. <laughs> sometimes I just do it. Um, and Blues for Alice, he had recorded too. So, it, and I'll be seeing you. He ended. Is it Kirkatron that ends with? I think um, so. I'll yeah. Be seeing you. Yeah. So, uh, and you know, obviously, his sense of humor, without a person without sight to play, I'll be seeing you. Is you know, is is is, is, <laughs> a, is a wink somehow, a wink and a nod. <laughs> And, um, yeah, I just, I don't know, I'll just, I relate, they all related to Rasson one way or another, whether he wrote it or friends of his or my two ones on there. Yeah. This, uh, this record includes one of my favorite Rasson tunes and it, it was one of the ones when I heard it that 
I don't know, they just kind of turned me in a different direction on Rasan, which is a theme for the Ulipians. We've already said the word Ulipians out loud, mentioning uh, Cafe Stritch. Um, but I've I've just always loved that piece, uh, you know, the the poetry that accompanies it, the, the, just the sound of it, the... There's some, because of I guess the the nature of of the words that are in the original, there is something about it that suggests travel and adventure and uh, you know kind of far off horizons to me. And uh, I was really really happy to hear the the great version of it that's on this record. Um, talk about how that got on there. Thanks. That's one of my favorite Rasan tunes as well, and it's from back then, and it's from. You know, that poem and Betty Neal's, you know, the poetess, um, she was going to be, we were going to be at a Rasanathon together and she called me about something and I answered the phone and it was Betty and it was that voice <laughs> and I burst into tears. <laughs> oh my gosh, I believe it. I was so moved to get to talk to, to speak with that voice and she's just one of the most lovely people in the, I've ever met. I mean, she's, she's brilliant, smart, she's smart as a whip and I adore her. But, um, so that song, but that song I'd been playing for a long time. I'd been playing that one on gigs before I really got into the Rasan band. Excuse me. You know, my, my band called the Raw Raw band, which was really just my band for a long time. And we would do different projects and I would rename the band because I thought that was fun. But, um, Playing that, that, theme for uh, the Ulipians at a non-Rasan-themed gig feels like one of those things where there's like two people in the audience who will get it, but those two people will be so excited when you start playing it. That yes. just it's, It seems like a super deep cut, and whoever <laughs> knows what's up is going to be really excited. Yes, yes. And also you're right about the whole, you know, the, I met him at an airport, and, um, you, you know, he, he it's it, it is about about a searching about searching souls because the Ulipians for anyone who doesn't know are the poets and the artists and the musicians. And so, you know, we're, it's, it's for, it's a tune for the seekers, let's say. And I agree people, but you know, the whole Rasan connection, when you, when you get the Rasan connection, it's, it's always a deep one. I find, you know, when, you know, you say something and somebody says, Oh, bright moment. It's like, Oh, it's a Rasan person. He's he's that way, and he you know he wasn't always he I think that he was respected, but you know some people accused him of gimmickry with playing couple horns at once. But I think Frank Foster or Frank West called him their favorite saxophone section. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, that's a great line. <laughs>
let's talk about the band on this record, um, your band at the time, because, uh, you know, one of the things, Rasan being such a force of nature, I think it can be uh, a little too easy to overlook the people who played with him and who had to, you know, not only kind of keep pace with, but match the intensity of this kind of volcanic player. And on this record, I mean, these ah. these musicians are tasked with that, you know, with that same thing. They have to, you know, they have to be up to the task of doing justice to, you know, his music and to your, your playing. So let's talk about who you've got on this album with you. Oh, thank you. Yes. Um, you know, they're all above and beyond the call of duty. This, this is a, this is a, 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 a band, a, a band of the, the, the kind of players. They're just a dream team. I mean, Peter Grant on drums, he was one of the best drummers in town, I believe. And um, he, I, I hate to say unsung hero, but really, I, he is, I've played with him for decades. And anybody who I know who, you know, then hires him or, you know, like people, people find out about Peter and it's, he's, um, I would say completely immersed in the music playing it. And, um, as is Dave Hofstra, the bass player, I don't know if you're familiar with Dave. Um, Dave was in the microscopic septet with Joel Forrester. That's how I met him with Joel Forrester. And um, we've been playing together for decades, too. And Dave is the rock of Gibraltar on the bass. There's just, I, I also, see, I feel like these are all some of the best. I, I don't want to use a word like untongue, but, you know, they're, they're, they're just, they're New York players that are so top shelf. You know, they show up all over the place and, and you might miss it if you weren't paying attention. Sure. Um, and Eli Yaman on piano, um, what a swinging player. And I would say that Eli is one of the best compers that I know too. Like his comping is so tasteful and so swinging and so fun to play with. They're, they are, um, they are a dream team. That that last uh, comment or compliment is a is a rare one. I have to say on on this show to hear people kind of say someone is a particularly good comper. I, it almost feels like it's uh, I don't know if it's a lost art, but maybe an art we don't we don't uh, lift up as much as we could. <laughs> I would call it absolutely a lost art. Um, oh my goodness! Yeah, uh, um, you know. I, Years ago, I, I taught at a jazz camp for 20 years up in Connecticut, Litchfield up in Connecticut, and Jeff Hirschfield was there. And I remember him saying, overplaying is a style now. <laughs> <laughs> that really kind of nails it. <laughs> you know, there's just uh, so much blah, 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 you know, that when somebody is, is, has some restraint and, and taste and chops, I mean, Eli plays his butt off. Eli is a great player too. All, all three of those people, I can only say how, uh, how much I respect and love them. I wanted to uh, just step away from this record for a moment um, because this is your your first time on the jazz session. I have some questions that you've probably been asked a lot, but I am curious about the answers and haven't had a chance to record them myself. One of them is uh, I'm just I'm curious about and I, I know a little of the history of this, but I would prefer that you say it than that I do about how you uh, 
ended up landing on uh, the Barry sax as your primary instrument. You you play more than that on this album. You also play flute and, as you mentioned, sing. Um, and you have played, of course, other horns. But uh, the Barry is, is what you're known for. How did that become the case? I mean, I was a saxophone player for for some time bef- before I was working as a sax player. I'd, I'd been an alto player when I went to Berkeley. And when I moved back to New York in the mid-'80s, I went to um, try a horn. I thought, well, if I have a baritone, I'm, you know, I could. Somebody was selling a baritone. And I went to play the horn. Actually, all roads lead to us on here. Um, I went to play the horn, and I played, I blew a note on this instrument, and I was like, oh, my God, you know, this is where I live. This is me. And I, I bought that horn. Turns out that's the horn that Howard Johnson's mother bought him in 1959, 57, <laughs> 1957 or 59. And um, being a Rossan freak, you know, Howard Johnson plays a tuba solo on the return of the 5,000 pound man. And, and I used to play it for everybody who came over to my house. I was like, listen to this, listen to this. And I play, you know, so I knew who Howard Johnson was. And, uh, and here I had this horn that was his. And literally, um, a couple weeks later, I was playing a gig at a place called Rick's Lounge on 8th Avenue and 19th Street. And in walks Howard Johnson. Now, oh, my God. Before that. And I wasn't playing on that horn. I was playing alto that night. And I, I, I was like, oh, my God, I, you're Howard Johnson. I have a saxophone that was yours. And it turns out he lived in the neighborhood, and so did I. We were neighbors, and we have been, we, you know, we were great friends and um, c- called that horn our horn. <laughs> he was like, oh, I told her never to sell that horn or something. I said, well, I'm not selling it, but if you ever want to use it, you can. <laughs> so, oh, that's a fabulous story. Again, all roads lead to Rossan. Right? I guess so. I guess so. Let's take a moment to thank the folks who make the jazz session possible, starting with the members who support it and also the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com. They've provided the theme music for every episode of the 14 years. Dave Rabel did the logo way back in the day. More recently, Chuck Ingersoll has become the voice of the intro. You can hire him to do your voiceover work at hearchucknow.com. Follow the Jazz Session on Twitter at Jazz Sesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram at The Jazz Session. Do me a favor, take a second to rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, because it really helps improve the chances that other people will learn about the show. If you want to keep up to date on my podcasts, poetry, my travel in the van, and more, subscribe to my twice-monthly newsletter. Go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. Now back to the episode.
did choosing the baritone as your primary instrument change what was available to you in ways you didn't expect, either positively or negatively, in terms of your your gigs and your career? That's a really good question. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I expected. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to be a saxophone player. Um the sound of the alto, this is, okay, this is a weird one. Um, the, the, I had, before I, maybe, no, probably after, long after I'd bought the baritone. I, I mean, I was an alto player primarily. That was my first horn. And I was out one night and I was hearing somebody play. And I was thinking to myself, now this person's, I would say, a better player than I am. And I don't like the sound of this. All of a sudden, like something happened and I didn't love the sound of the alto. Now that is not true across the board, but um, I don't know. I just had a, I just had it. Or maybe it was just that I had discovered my own voice in the baritone. Did it change things? I don't know. I, I, I that's, that's a, that's, I can't really speculate on that one. Cause yeah, I'm not I guess... sure what I expected. Fair enough. And I guess we can never know. I just I think about, you know, for example, uh, if you specialize on the soprano saxophone, there are a lot of like horn section gigs that are not any longer in in your uh, in your wheelhouse because, right. those, you know, that horn doesn't usually appear in a you know, if you're doing like, you know, you're making money playing like in an R&B band or something, you're you're not there aren't soprano players. So I just was thinking about, you know, I wonder if that changed what was available or what you decided to go for you know, kind of early in your career, but it's, it's completely fine if that's unknowable as well. It's, yeah. I don't, that's the, the, it's a funny question for me because I, 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 as, as you're talking, I'm thinking, well, I wasn't really somebody who had a business plan, like how all this was going <laughs> to go. I, I, I really, I really just rode the waves, I think of doing what I wanted to do. I didn't give much thought to things. In fact, when I made my first record for Donald Elfman at Koch, um, I thought that I was making that record to use as Christmas presents for my friend. Like he, cause I was playing with Joel. I had recorded several records with Joel Forrester on Koch. And he said, if you want to do something of your own, we'll put it out. So I was like, Oh great. I'll make a record. Well, what am I going to do? Uh, you know, I didn't really even have designs to, to, to do all of it <laughs> um, until it was, you know, put there. And then I was like, okay, well, I'll probably use this for Christmas presents. I, I just couldn't have imagined that I would um, get, a, you know, the beginnings of, in quotes, a career um, from it. But it put me on the map. And, uh, and I will ever be grateful to Donald, who, you know, put out two records for me back then. And then in the pandemic called me out of the blue, liking the Rasan record. I guess, you know, I'd probably given it to him in 2008. And he finally got around to listening to it in the <laughs> pandemic. And, um, uh, he must've had know, quite a he, stack he, next it, to his bed. If it took him 13 years to, uh, <laughs> to get to the record. <laughs> no, I think his basement, I think his basement was full of things. People have given him over the years, but I mean, he's a, he's a record guy. He knows records. He, sure. Thank you. 
As we uh, draw to a close here, Claire, um, I've been listening to this album a lot um, since knowing that I was going to talk to you about it. And one thing I'm struck about, you know, by this album, and I think kind of by Rassan's music in general, is um, a, a real timeless quality to it. And I think that word often gets overused, but I, I kind of feel like this this music was recorded for all time in a way that I don't just mean like because he recorded it or because you recorded these pieces, they, you know, they will live on because they're recorded. I, I more mean that this music feels like whenever you're listening to it, that's exactly when it was intended for. And I feel that way about listening to your record and the same about his originals. And I'm just, I'm curious if that resonates with you at all. Wow, that's that's lovely, and yes, you know it does because it, it's it's amazing to me. You know, I made the record one or twelve years ago or thirteen years ago, and when I hear it, I hear myself thirteen years ago. So I'm like, oh, I wish I could do that over again. You know, like, <laughs> I'm I'm thinking that way about it, like it's from a period of time. But I'm surprised. I've had some reviews and some wonderful comments about about it holding up and being, you know, being, you know, so it doesn't, so that's, I guess that is the thing about um, music is it, it, music is timeless really, Um, you know, or it can be. And yeah, I'm, I think, I think Rassan, you know, I, again, back to the thing that when he was younger, I think he was accused of gimmickry, if you can imagine that. And, um, you know, I think that as time goes on, Rafan will get more and more recognition for who he was, because who he was was a, I think, a very important person in in the jazz lineage. And certainly, I mean, who is that original and creative now? Who's who's doing who's doing anything comparable? You know. I don't mean the same thing. There are a lot of people now playing two horns at once or three horns at once. Well, two at least, but, um, you know, he, he, uh, he was truly unique. He is one of my go-tos when somebody tells me I don't like jazz. Normally, when somebody says I don't like jazz, I ask them what kind of music they like, and I find them some improvised music that's kind of like that, because that seems to make the most sense. But if somebody just says, like, oh, I don't really know anything about jazz, or I've never really listened to it, and I'm just going to pick somebody out of the blue to give them, uh, Rasan is he's an almost foolproof <laughs> person to give to somebody, because he's, I mean, anybody can just feel like the just bolts of energy, you know, shooting out of those recordings. And, uh, I feel like it's a, it's an awesome gateway drug. And then if you, if, if you take the gateway drug and you go all in, then he's got that for you too. He'll, he'll accompany you as you go deeper, but he'll also welcome you into the party, I think in a really great way. Oh my God, you, I'm jumping. I am jumping here. You have hit on something I really would have meant to say, which one of the things that I've done um, I, I had a clinic when I taught, I taught at the middle school academy at Jazz at Lincoln Center for 10 years with Eli. Eli Yeaman was the head of that program. And I did a workshop on Rasan for the kids. They got a introduction to jazz masters every Saturday. So I did a workshop about Rasan and it, 
he is the perfect person to bring in young listeners. Um, his energy, they can relate to his energy because he's wild. You know, you've seen that film at the end of the festival where he breaks up a chair and stuff like yeah. he'd run out, he'd go out in the audience and, um, oh my goodness. Um, so, so great. And that, that was so true. Those kids, when they walked in, you know, I was playing, um, bright moments no, uh, yeah, I was playing Bright Moments when they walked in. And so there's that sort of choral singing happening at the beginning, right? Is that it? Is that the one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they sing well, the, word, the title. So, and, and, the, and, I, and I'd say to the kids, like, so what did you think of that music when you walked in? And, you know, some kids would say it was corny or, you know, they had some sort of judgment of it because it didn't, it, it wasn't like, you know, or like you're saying. So, um, so I go, okay, well, I want to talk to you about Rasan. And then I would teach them about Rasan. And, um, at the end of the clinic, um, I, I had these cards, uh, George Bonifacio is a collector of all things Rasan. He's, it's amazing. <laughs> it's an amazing life of collecting that stuff. And he, he gave me, um, the things to make the vibration society, membership cards. So, uh, so I have these membership cards for the vibration society, which was a rough on thing. So at the end of the thing, I would say, well, who wants to be a member of the, after they learned about him and learned what he was. And then I'd show films and I'd show them the Ed Sullivan film and, you know, the footage and all kinds of stuff. Um, that's another big story. And, um, I'd say, okay, I, I go, okay, who wants to be a member of the vibration society? And they'd all be like, me, me, you know, <laughs> do that. you know, they completely turned around on him by learning about who he was and hearing the music, hearing, hearing different things. So. Uh, yeah. that's really beautiful. I love it. Yeah. Well, yeah. my guest for this episode has been Claire Daly, and despite the fact that we have spent a lot of time talking about Russ on Roland Kirk, um, I want to emphasize that Claire <laughs> is the reason for the episode, and while you absolutely should check out the music of Russ on Roland Kirk, uh, you should also absolutely check out the music of Claire Daly, including her most uh, recent release, which is called Ra Ra, uh, which will be linked in the show notes, uh, but she's put out a bunch of really cool records that involve... Uh, much kind of in the spirit of what we've been talking about today involve, you know, everything from kind of a spoken word and uh, hip hop to uh, a lot, you know, more straight ahead stuff. Um, her music is is very much worth your time. Claire, it's uh, it's a long overdue pleasure to finally have you on the jazz session. I do hope you'll come back and I thank you so much for being on the uh, the 14th anniversary show. Well, happy anniversary to 14 years of of the really the original jazz podcast that's that's stunning and thank you for having me and bright moments to you and all your listeners today Thanks to this week's guest, Claire Daly. If you value what you just heard, become a member for 5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. And then come back next time as we start a new year and another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.
Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.